Well, uh, good morning. Go ahead and uh, make your way in. Uh, welcome to Theological Equipping Class. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here at uh, the Parkway Church. And uh, so let's pray and then we will uh, dive in this morning. Father, we're grateful for, uh, for your grace and uh, the promise that uh, your mercies are new every morning. And, uh, and so uh, you teach us to not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so we pray this morning as we uh, consider your word and, uh, and reflect upon this very divisive and dif- difficult topic that you would give us grace, that your spirit would help us and that we would be faithful uh, to you. And so we love you. We're grateful for an opportunity for us to gather today and uh, to consider these things. And so pray that you would help us in, uh, in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, this semester we are talking about political and social issues. Why are we talking about those? Because the role of the church is to make disciples. And discipleship means that we teach the full counsel of God, and the full counsel of God includes things about political and social issues. So we're not just trying to be controversial or just trying to be spicy or something like that. It just so happens that there are controversial and spicy things in Scripture. And so we have to be faithful to talk about those things. And this morning we're talking about one of the most controversial issues in contemporary culture. As a result, as I've been preparing for this, I've kind of had a love-hate relationship with my studies for this particular talk. I'm eager, I'm excited, because it's such a divisive, uh, divisive topic that the church needs some clarity on. But at the same time, the fact that it's so divisive and all of the social unrest makes it feel more weighty than perhaps some of the other topics that we're talking about this semester. I mean, the environment is important. We're gonna talk about that next week, but uh, we don't really see anyone establishing autonomous zones to protest recycling policies or anything like that. So this is a very weighty uh, topic that's very divisive in our culture and much of that confusion and much of that division is actually uh, uh, due to some postmodern philosophical assumptions. We'll talk about that uh, shortly. But it's it's important also to recognize this is not just a modern phenomenon. That uh, the very first church council that we see in Scripture was called because of conversations regarding race, or at least ethnicity, Uh, And most of the Pauline uh, epistles, most of the letters that Paul writes deal somewhat with the topic of ethnicity. So this conversation has always been laden with a degree of difficulty, but it's even more so today because we find ourselves in a country, in a context with a tragic track record on race relations with things like slavery and Jim Crow laws and so forth. And then on top of all of that, you have these modern and postmodern philosophical assumptions that we're going to talk about. And so as a result of all of these factors, any sort of careful, nuanced, biblical conversation on race in America today has to ask a bunch of questions. Things like, is there systemic injustice today? Are persons of color disproportionately killed by police officers? Are all whites complicit in cultural, or it should say the word systemic in your notes there, cultural or systemic racism? How do we even define racism? Can minorities be racist? So the hope today is that we will attempt to unravel some of this and have an understanding not only of what scripture says about race in general, but also what God says regarding some of these questions that are being assumed in culture. And so we hope to do so by answering four main questions. What is race? What is racism? 
What makes this conversation so difficult today? And then what is the solution? Let's begin with the question, what is race? Well, when Christians talk about the Trinity, when we talk about Trinitarianism, we confess that there is both unity and also diversity within the Godhead. There is one God, that's unity, but that one God has eternally existed as Father, Son, and Spirit. So there is diversity. Somewhat similarly, we see the concepts of unity and diversity in mankind as well. We are only one species. All of us are just human, but we aren't monolithic. We aren't all the exact same. Instead, there is diversity. There's various shades of melanin. Uh, there's two genders. There's thousands of language and dialects. There's different ages and so forth. And then we see that there are a number of ways that people are categorized or distinguished within Scripture. We see one example in Revelation 7. You have it there in your notes. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. So humanity there is differentiated on the basis of nations and tribes and people groups and languages. Well, what about race? The word race isn't used there. Well, it depends on what you mean by race. Often race is used synonymously with the concept of ethnicity, but technically those are actually different. Ethnicity, you see, tends to refer to cultural distinctions like language or nationality. Race, on the other hand, is more biological. Race is manifest in, uh, in these physical features like skin color or hair texture. So for example, your ethnicity might relate to your Italian or your Irish heritage, but your race would be for most people uh, to be considered white or Caucasian. Your ethnicity might be Nigerian or Kenyan or Sudanese, but your race is black or African American. Your ethnicity is Japanese or Korean, but your race is Asian. So race and ethnicity are technically different concepts, but they're often used interchangeably in many uh, contexts. And so, but with this distinction in mind, we don't see much of the modern conception of race within Scripture. We do see a certain type of othering in Scripture, other nations, other tribes, and so forth. In fact, every culture that has ever existed has had a tendency to do what we call othering. Even the survivors on Lost othered who they called the others. But, but and this is a really important uh, distinction to realize, othering that we see in Scripture, that we see in the Bible, that we see in ancient culture, typically wasn't based on racial distinctions. Instead, it was ethnic. It was linguistic. It was cultural. It was religious. It was tribal. So if you're a Roman, anyone who wasn't a Roman was what? You know, you know what Romans called everybody else? Barbarians, right? So if you weren't a Roman, you were a barbarian. If you weren't a Jew, you were a what? A Gentile. But neither of those were actually racial categories. What distinguished a Roman from a barbarian wasn't biology or genetics or physical features, but education and culture. What distinguished a Jew from a Gentile wasn't blood, but rather religion. So when the Apostle John calls Jews a synagogue of Satan, that isn't anti-Semitic racism. Remember, John himself is a uh, Jew. Instead, it is a religious thing. It has nothing to do with race. Therefore, the borders between Jew and Gentile, or between Roman and barbarian, were porous. In other words, a Gentile could convert to Judaism and become a Jew. A, uh, a barbarian could, achi uh, could achieve citizenship and become Roman. So the concept of race 
as we view the term today, this unchangeable biological or genetic distinction really isn't a biblical category. So where does the idea of race, as we think of it today, where does that come from? What's the Germans? Actually, most of our modern theories about race uh, derive from the 17th and 18th century German sociologists. That's where you get the idea that uh, humanity is basically broken down into three main races, white, black, and Asian. Other social scientists divided into four main groups or five main races or something like that. But the point is, this isn't a, uh, a biblical distinction. It's a modern sociological distinction that even modern social science doesn't agree on. People don't even agree how many races there are. So race isn't really a biblical category. It's this man-made social construct that has only existed for a few hundred years, and yet it's become the dominant way of othering others, especially in America. And that's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that this has become the dominant way that we view uh, each other for at least four reasons. One, because all men and women are created in the image of God, regardless of your race. Second, all men and women share in a common heritage in Adam. We're all descended from the same ancestor. Third, in Christ, all of these dividing walls like ethnicity and gender, which by the way are actual biblical categories, are broken down. How much less should a social construct, this man-made idea like race, actually define us? And then fourth, because racial distinctions are actually less helpful and less important than cultural distinctions. Some of you know this, but as an example, my dad is half Japanese, but since he was raised as an American citizen, he has much more in common with a black or Latino man from Texas than he does his own Japanese ancestors. Here's my point, considering how much our culture and we make of race today, the Bible actually says very little about that particular concept. What it does say should lead us to downplay such distinctions rather than do what our culture does, which is to emphasize them. Whether you have a lot of melanin or very little melanin, we're all created in the image of God and reconciled in Christ. So that is race. Well, what is racism? Well, racism is defined as prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism directed at a person or people on the basis of their membership within a particular ethnic or racial group. In other words, it's the denial of the equality of, or value of another on the basis of their race. Unfortunately, that isn't always how the term is used today, but we'll get to that. But because the Bible doesn't use the word race in the same way that we use it today, it also doesn't use the term racism. Now, don't think that that means that the Bible doesn't address racism. It does. The Bible doesn't have to use a particular word in order to address a topic. We've mentioned this before. The word Trinity is nowhere in the Bible, but the concept is. Or, or the Bible doesn't explicitly mention cocaine but that doesn't mean that you can go and do a line before services or something like that. The Bible might not use a word explicitly, but it implicitly mentions that particular topic. And so likewise, the word racism isn't in Scripture, but the concept is. Look at Galatians 5. In Galatians 5, 19 through 21, Paul is listing the works of the flesh. And among those, he lists these, enmity, strife, Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. So racism is just any of those works of the flesh with a racial basis, with a racial component. So racism is just one manifestation of these works of the flesh. 
Therefore, you could say actual racism is evil. And you should say that. It's sinful, it's immoral, it's unjust. It's a form of bigotry and pride. Not only uh, is it one of the evidences of the flesh, according to Galatians 5, but also it's evil because it refutes the Imago Dei. How so? Because it suggests that someone else is inferior or less images God. It also forsakes our common heritage in Adam. It forsakes the command to love your neighbor. It breaks the command against showing partiality. It rejects the reality of a new creation in Christ. It distorts the doctrine of justification by faith by somehow suggesting that my race or my biology or my ethnicity or my culture somehow contributes to make me a little bit more savable than somebody else. So again, racism, actual racism is evil and perverse. Yet history is littered with examples of racism. For example, antebellum slavery. Notice I didn't just say slavery because not all slavery historically has been racial. Even the word slave is from the word slav and originally referred to white slaves. So not all slavery has been racial, but the particular form of slavery practiced in the new world was decidedly sinful and decidedly racist. In addition to that, you have Jim Crow laws, you have the KKK and so forth, but this isn't just an American problem. That's this strange assumption in culture today. I I heard someone say recently that America invented slavery. Though slavery has been around for thousands of years and has existed in almost every culture that has ever existed, and people would know that if they read good books instead of just following Taylor Swift on Twitter. So let me give you some particularly non-American expressions of historic racism you might be familiar with. The Holocaust. Millions of Jews were massacred. That's a pretty big one. Apartheid in uh, South Africa. Various genocides, including uh, the Rwandan genocide. If you've ever seen the movie Hotel Rwanda. Serbian or or, or Armenian, not Armenian, that's a different thing. Uh, And and the caste system in uh, India. We could go on and on with these historic examples of racism. But unfortunately, racism is not just this relic of history relegated to the past. We see racism even today. Sometimes it's overt, like what's happening in China with certain displaced minority groups. Sometimes it's subtle. Someone doesn't want their child to hang out with someone of another race. They don't really think that person is less than, but they just think they're different, or you don't want your child to date someone of the other race or something like that. By and large, racism today is less explicit, less overt than previous generations, but it still exists. It's kind of like a Xerox copy, if you remember a Xerox machine. Each generation, the racist image kind of fades as a copy kind of fades over time, but there's still this residual evidence, this racist uh, watermark that you can still uh, see. This is where we need to be really careful, those of us who are more theologically uh, conservative, because it's all too easy for us to just swing the pendulum. Certain voices in our culture want to make everything about race. And to say that racism has permeated absolutely everything. So it's tempting to avoid that by swinging the pendulum and saying, we make nothing about race. And racism has permeated nothing. But if racism is just one form of enmity and pride and prejudice and division and so forth, then it's possible, if not probable, that even in the hearts of sincere Christians, there lurks some residual racism. Until Christ returns, your heart is going to war with the flesh and pride and prejudice are just one manifestation of the flesh. 
So it would serve us well as believers to not think that we've somehow evolved beyond this particular sin, as if that we are somehow beyond the reach of the possibility of racism or we're somehow immune to it. So to this point, everyone should be able to agree with the following propositions. Number one, that people of every race, ethnicity, people group, and language are made in the image of God and thus worthy of our love and also worthy of justice and equality before the law. Number two, that actual racism is sin and thus evil. Number three, that we should search our hearts for any signs of residual racism, whether overt or subtle. But beyond those three things, the conversation on race in America today gets profoundly complicated. So let's talk a bit about why that is. It's a, I don't know if you know this, but 2020 in America, it's a strange time to be alive, right? We have a global pandemic. It's an election year. Tom Brady isn't a patriot anymore, right? This is all crazy stuff. Yet race is actually at the forefront of our cultural attention. Think about the past few months. There's weeks of protests and riots in major cities, calls to defund the police, even some cities that have passed resolutions to do so. There's autonomous zones named Chaz, Although that sounds less like the name of the autonomous zone and more like the Antifa resident that actually lives in the, uh, the zone. There's messages on the backs of jerseys if you watch uh, uh, various sports. And every company that you've ever shopped at sends you emails. What do those emails say? We oppose racism, which is great because it's about time somebody did something about racist tires or bigoted hamburgers or whatever it might be. It kind of feels like if you're walking into a room and everyone is screaming and you're just trying to have a constructive conversation. That's how I feel every single week in staff meeting. Zach and Tim are screaming. Carl's taking an old man nap. Jared's watching Daniel Tiger. So for most of us, the conversation around race is really just confusing. It kind of gives us tired head to try to talk about this. It's, it's like trying to untie this knot that's been tied too tightly. And what's contributing to this confusion? What are some of these knots? Well, I'm gonna mention uh, eight things. It's really unfortunate that I ended up with eight because apparently eight is a racist number. I read that online. But I had 12, which is a biblical number, and, uh, and, and I'm gonna run out of time. So we're gonna do uh, eight. Some of them I'll expound upon in depth. Others we'll just kind of mention and, uh, and move on. But the, uh, the eight reasons that this is particularly difficult today Number one, this is difficult because things are so politicized and polarized. No longer are we just having a conversation. Instead, there is no conversation, there is only monologue. If you even question the narrative, you are immediately pigeonholed. By the way, what's a pigeonhole? That's a really weird word, I just thought of that. Uh, Notice the catch-22 though that Christians find themselves in. Culture says that silence is violence. So as a Christian, you have to say something, you're compelled. But if you say anything other than the mainstream opinion, then you're very saying something is racist. So you're racist if you don't say something and you're racist if you do say something. So this polarization makes things difficult. It's also difficult because of the influence of the media. And I mean the right or the left. Let me give you one example. Raise your hand if you know the name George Floyd, all right? Almost everybody in the room knows the name George Floyd. Raise your hand if you know the name Tony Tempa. Very few people know the name Tony Tempa. Who was Tony Tempa? He was another man who died of suffocation while being restrained by police. Yet most of us haven't heard of him. 
which is really weird because this didn't happen in Idaho or Alaska. It happened in Dallas, our very backyard, just a couple of years ago. It's almost like the media has this vested interest in, uh, in talking about when an unarmed black man is killed, but not in telling us when the exact same thing happens to someone who happens to not be a person of color. Before studying for this lesson, I could name more than a dozen black persons who were killed by police, but I couldn't name a single white or Asian or Latino person. Although those, although those groups comprise the overwhelming majority of all police shootings. So most media outlets today are more interested in creating this outrage culture, which we'll talk about in a few weeks, than in just reporting the facts. So the media and media bias makes this harder. It's also made harder by division in the church. Even pastors and theologians are diametrically opposed on this topic. Voices that have historically been rather united are now very divided on this uh, topic. Guys that I would historically recommend with no qualification whatsoever, just say read everything you can by this person, now have a little asterisk by their name when it comes to this particular uh, topic. So this division, even within the church where there should be unity, makes it really hard to find biblical and theological answers. It's also made more difficult by unbiblical assumptions. These are all over the place. These things that we just carry into the conversation, things that we just presuppose, that we preconceive when we bring into the conversation. For example, the idea that privilege is bad. As you talk about white privilege, that assumes that privilege is a bad thing rather than what the Bible actually says that it's something that should be appreciated and stewarded. Not something that you have to necessarily repent of. Yes, you can use privilege in a bad way, but privilege is also a gift of God that you can use in a good way to glorify him and to help your fellow uh, brothers and sisters. Or the idea that stereotyping is inherently discriminatory. We actually see stereotyping in scripture, even by uh, the apostles and so forth. Or the idea that we should repent of, our, of the sins of our ancestors, even though the Bible says no longer is God going to judge the son for the sins of the father. Or the idea that uh, any disparity between races is inevitably due to racism. When in reality, study after study has shown that when you account for other relevant factors, such disparities, whether of income or wealth or whatever it might be, significantly narrow, if not close entirely. But these assumptions that we bring into the conversation because our culture is feeding them to us make the conversation more difficult. The last three I'm really going to expound upon. All right, so the fifth one that makes this hard is equivocation. We've talked about this a lot. What's equivocation? Go back and listen to one of our classes on uh, logical fallacies for more on this. But basically equivocation is when you use the same word uh, in multiple ways in the midst of a conversation. For example, if I say that sometimes kids can be a real headache and I also say that two Motrin make a headache go away, I don't mean that two Motrin make my kids go away. Right? I'm equivocating on the meaning of the word headache. In one sense, I'm using it literally. In the other sense, I'm using it figuratively. So much, much of the confusion around the topic of race and racism today is founded upon equivocation. I'll give you a couple of examples. First, the very meaning of the word racism. We said earlier that racism involves prejudice or enmity toward another race, but that isn't how the word is actually used today. Instead, racism is an expression of prejudice plus power. 
The definition has changed subtly. What's the result? Well, those who aren't in power can't be racist, according to the new definition of our culture. So if a white man critiques a person of color, that's racist. But when black actor Nick Cannon says that whites are actually inferior to blacks, which he actually did, that's not racist. So we're equivocating on the meaning of the word racist. In fact, according to some, you don't even have to be prejudiced to be racist. If you're white, then you are inherently and inevitably racist, even if you've never had a racist thought or a racist feeling. That's the contention of Robin D'Angelo, whose book White, White Fragility has topped the New York Times bestseller list. But that's one example of equivocation. Another example concerns the, uh, the meaning of words like justice and equality. We'll talk about the differences between worldly justice and biblical justice in a few weeks, but let's talk a little bit about equality. We talked about this some last week. We all have certain assumptions uh, as to what we mean by the term equality. Does equality mean that law should treat everyone equally and that everyone is entitled to the same rules and standards? That the law doesn't care if you're a man or woman, rich or poor, black or white? Why is lady justice historically portrayed wearing a blindfold? Because justice is blind. That's the idea there. It shouldn't care about your race or your socioeconomic class or your religion or your gender. That's called formal equality. That's how, uh, how equality has been understood for hundreds of years. And most of us would resonate with that understanding. We would hear that and we would say, yes, that sounds right to me, but not everyone. Instead, you have a competing vision or definition of equality that is actually diametrically opposed in what is called material or substantive equality, which actually says that you should intentionally treat people differently, intentionally treat people unequally so as to achieve equal results. So the equality in this view isn't about equality of opportunity, but rather outcome. This is the equality that is being promoted today in most of the conversations about race. This is what drives affirmative action and tokenism in which someone of a particular class, whether that's a class on the basis of race or gender or sexuality or whatever it might be, is hired in order to fill some sort of quota. And today, this is called justice. This is called equality. But the better biblical term for it is actually partiality. What is partiality? What's well, prejudice on the basis of some attribute like socioeconomic class, gender, age, or race. Partiality is judgment, but it's judgment on the basis of the face, some external characteristic rather than the facts. And what does the Bible say about partiality? Leviticus 19.15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. What does our culture say? Our culture says be partial to a poor man because they've historically been oppressed. What does God say about that? Don't be partial to either the rich or the poor. Be par partial to the truth and nothing but the truth. Deuteronomy 16, 19 through 20, you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality and you shall not accept a bribe for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow. Notice the implication there that partiality isn't justice. The problem with those who are all about social justice today isn't that they care about justice, it's that they use the word justice to defend partiality, which the Bible says is injustice. 
And this isn't just in the Old Testament. 1 Timothy 5.21, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. In fact, James 2.9 says, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So the Bible talks about justice The Bible talks about equality. So Christians should talk about justice and equality. We should fight for justice and equality. But if we're going to demonstrate biblical virtues, we must first fight for biblical definitions of those virtues. Worldly justice is to actual justice what Mormonism is to Christianity. It uses the same terms, but it's not the same thing. So equivocation is a problem that makes this more difficult, as is propaganda which is related to equivocation. Propaganda involves the use of biased language to make some politicized point. For example, you might notice abortionists don't call themselves baby killers, right? That's not PC. What do they call themselves? Pro-choice. Why? Because then if you oppose them, it seems like you aren't only against abortion, but you're also against women making choices. And who wants to admit that? And this is huge in race conversations today with phrases like anti-racist. According to popular opinion today, it's not enough to simply not be racist. You must be actively an anti-racist. Well, what's that mean? Well, anti-racists say that all differences between two classes, whether that class is on the basis of race or gender or whatever it might be, are only a result of discrimination. If you have something and you're a different class than I am, and I don't have that thing, the result is always discrimination. Anti-racists also say that whites are inherently racist. So anti-racism is actually racism. Kind of like Antifa, which stands for what? Anti-fascist, but is ironically fascist. Another example of propaganda is the phrase Black Lives Matter. How is that propaganda? Because the words are obviously true. Is anyone seriously arguing that black lives don't matter? Of course not. But the meaning of those words also include connotations like the idea that blacks are systematically uh, oppressed today and are regularly hunted by police officers and not to mention the explicit uh, connection to the organization called Black Lives Matter. What's wrong with this organization? Well, a few things. It explicitly endorses Marxism and abortion and LGBTQ causes and the breakdown of the nuclear family, among other things. It doesn't just implicitly do so. If you go to their website, they explicitly lay out their goals, which includes Marxism, abortion, LGBTQ causes, and the uh, rethinking of the nuclear family, among other things. But the slogan, Black Lives Matter, seems so compelling. It seems so innocuous and good. As Noam Chomsky says, that's the whole point of good propaganda. You want to create a slogan that nobody's going to be against and everybody's going to be for. Nobody knows what it means because it doesn't mean anything. So propaganda makes the conversation hard. Next, misinformation. Imagine if you can this hypothetical scenario in which humanity is threatened by a global pandemic. And in the midst of that pandemic, this hypothetical government came out and said, masks don't help at all. And then weeks later, they said, just kidding, masks are the best. That's the only thing that helps. And then some doctors said that an already existing drug is really helpful. And then other doctors said, nope, it's really dangerous. If you can imagine such a world, you could probably imagine that it would be pretty difficult to know what to really believe. Well, likewise, with misinformation, 
in regards to these conversations on race. Let me give you an example of this tendency of uh, misinformation. A few months ago, the noted sociologist, Dr. LeBron James, uh, tweeted, (laughs) we're literally hunted every day, every time we step step foot outside the comfort of our homes. Now forget the fact that LeBron apparently doesn't know the meaning of the word uh, literally. Is it even figuratively true what he says? It's certainly the cultural narrative that police are disproportionately unjustly murdering scores of black men and women on a regular basis. So how would you respond to that? Well, you could first go to the data. I saw a video recently where a journalist went to a protest a couple of months ago and he asked protesters how many unarmed black persons are killed each year by police. Many of the protesters thought the answer was in the hundreds or thousands, when in reality last year, it was 14 to 25, depending on the statistics. And by the way, significantly more unarmed whites were killed by police as well. But what about the question of proportionality? Well, study after study has shown that there is no anti-black bias that can be seen in police shootings. These aren't just studies by conservative scholars, mind you. They're in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and other very left-leaning media. So one response is to simply point to the data, which actually disproves the whole theory. But here's the problem with using objective uh, facts and data. The uh, the National Museum of African American History and Culture recently said that things like data and objective rational thinking are, quote, expressions of whiteness and white culture. If you wonder why some mathematicians are suddenly literally saying that two plus two doesn't always equal four, It's because of this type of thinking that says data and objective facts and numbers and math are tools to perpetuate oppression. So you can't use data, so what do you do? Well, you could mention individual instances of police shootings of unarmed black persons. And the fact that for every single high-profile shooting of an unarmed person of color, there's a similar shooting of an unarmed white person. For every George Floyd, there's a Tony Tempa, which seems to suggest that whatever the problem is, It isn't really about race. In fact, when you look at each and every shooting uh, of a black man or woman over the past couple of years and examine the facts, one of two things is true. Either the officer was arrested and prosecuted or the shooting was self-evidently justified. Now don't get get me wrong, let me clarify something here. Every single police shooting is a tragedy. That's a dad or a son, or a mom, or a sister, or a friend of someone. That is an image bearer. So every single shooting is a tragedy, but not every shooting is an injustice. And that's a distinction we have to understand. Let me say it again because it's really important. Every single shooting, whether the person is armed or unarmed, or whatever the circumstances, every shooting is a tragedy, but not every shooting is an injustice for a couple of reasons. Number one, because Romans 13 says that the government does not bear the sword in vain. If you steal a pack of gum from a store, you don't deserve to die. That's absolutely true. But if you resist rest and then get shot, you need to understand you aren't being shot for stealing gum. You're being shot for assaulting an officer or some other capital crime. In nearly every single case where an unarmed person is shot, they are actively resisting arrest. Second reason, because unarmed doesn't imply unthreatening. In fact, in most cases in which a quote unarmed man or woman of whatever race is shot, he or she is trying to run over a police officer in a car 
or had already beaten another officer unconscious or was trying to take the officer's gun or something like that. But that's considered unarmed, actually, in the data. Certainly not the hands up, don't shoot narrative you hear from media. But again, I'm not saying that every shooting has been justified. Most seem to be, but some aren't. And in each of those cases, the officer has been arrested. So the narrative that cops are shooting black men and women and getting away with it indiscriminately is false. In fact, we actually see that the opposite is true. Instead, officers who have justly shot someone have been unjustly arrested, as seems to be the case with the Richard Brooks uh, shooting in Atlanta. And if we're going to care about the topic of injustice when a person of color is unjustly shot, as we should, then we also have to care when a police officer of any race is unjustly arrested. Look at Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Am I saying that there are no bad cops? No. Am I saying that there haven't been unjust shootings of black men or women lately? No. But I am saying that the narrative of racial murder is terribly misleading. We might want to question our presuppositions. Even if we agree that George Floyd's death was tragic and unfortunate, that doesn't mean it had anything at all to do with race or racism. But that's the assumption that's made today, that every shooting of a person of color is inherently influenced by race. So misinformation about actual uh, incidents and statistics clouds the conversation. Last one, philosophical presuppositions. This is a big one because unfortunately... Most of our current conversations on race rely more on secular sociology and psychology and philosophy than in Christian theology. If you really want to know what's happening in contemporary culture with terms like white privilege and intersectionality and social justice and systemic racism and why there are calls for defunding the police and reparations and why there's an upswing in support for socialism in our culture and all of these sorts of things, then you need to understand what is called critical theory. Critical theory is kind of like the force in Star Wars movies. It affects absolutely everything, and yet most people aren't even aware that it exists while it's pulling the philosophical strings of culture. So what is critical theory? Well, it's a philosophical critique of culture in which positions of power are revealed and challenged. Remember that phrase, positions of power. That is what critical theory is all about. Like Dwight Schrute from The Office, critical theory is all about power. Well, where did critical theory come from? Well, it also came from Germany. It's a repackaged application of Karl Marx. Who was Karl Marx? Well, remember, he provided the foundation of Marxism. What is Marxism? It's the philosophical foundation of both socialism and communism. So the, under, uh, the underlying, undergirding philosophical assumptions of Nazi Germany, Soviet Russia, communist China, North Korea, the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, all of those are explicitly Marxist. By the way, that's over 100 million deaths in 100 years if you care about justice. And that's the undergirding philosophy being promoted in government and even in many churches today, subtly. And there are many forms of critical theory. Each one is concerned with distinction between the oppressor and the oppressed. That's what critical theory is about. All of humanity is divided into oppressor and the oppressed. And so critical theory affects how people think about gender, males oppress females, or religion, Christians oppress 
atheists or Muslims, sexuality, heterosexuals, oppressed homosexuals or bisexuals, cisgendered persons, oppressed transgendered persons, socioeconomic class, the rich oppress the poor, and even capitalism. In other words, it critiques everything. But when this philosophical lens is aimed at race in particular, it is called critical race theory. What is critical race theory? What's the belief that race is a socially constructed concept created by those in power in order to oppress minorities, specifically African-Americans or people of color. Notice the reference to power. Most of those who are yelling the loudest today about racism aren't actually talking about melanin, but might. It's not about color, it's about control and privilege because power is what critical theory is all about. Which is why most protesters aren't black and similar protests are happening in other countries without a history of chattel slavery and uh, Jim Crow laws and so forth. And if you don't have power because you happen to be in one of these historically oppressed classes like people of color or women or transgendered or lesbian or impoverished or whatever, then critical theory is this way to give you a voice and power and platform. If you wonder how a feminist and a man who now identifies as a woman can march together in the same protest even though feminism and transgenderism are completely diametrically opposed, the answer is that they find some degree of commonality in the idea of oppression in critical theory. And so every place that you are oppressed is another opportunity for you to be heard. So imagine that you're a poor Hispanic female. Well, that's three oppression points, poor, Hispanic, and female. If you're also a non-Christian, that's another. And then if you're a lesbian, that's even one more. And this all relates to what is called intersectionality, right? Which is the idea that your identity is formed at the intersection of these various oppressions that you experience. So if you're poor, you're Latina, you're female, you're non-Christian, and you're homosexual, then where all of those overlap, kind of like a Venn diagram, that's your identity. Your identity is found in these intersections of oppression. Sounds like a band name, Intersections of Oppression. And this is a really big problem from a Christian perspective for a couple of reasons. First, because it means you find your identity in something other than Christ. And that's a big deal. I saw a black pastor tweet a while back that in this season he has to identify more with blacks than with Christians. Let me be clear, if you find your identity or your voice or your worth in your race or your gender or your sexuality or your socioeconomic class, instead of Christ, if you find your identity in anything other than Christ, that's sub-Christian. That's not Christian, that's blasphemous. That's the first reason that this is a problem. The second reason is because the more oppressed you are, the louder a voice you should have. Now notice the implication of that. That means that truth is no longer this objective standard that stands above us all, but instead it's subjective, it's relative. The thoughts and the feelings of a Hispanic lesbian are more authoritative, a little bit, than a Hispanic man, but they're a lot more authoritative than a white heterosexual man because she has more points of intersectionality. In other words, members of perceived oppressed groups have special access to truth because of their lived experiences of oppression. This is why Vody Bauckham, who's a, a, a great uh, voice on these things, uh, he's a black pastor who actually uh, moved to, uh, to Zambia to, to uh, help with a seminary over there. Uh, but Vody Bauckham calls this ethnic Gnosticism. The idea that truth is only unlocked by your membership in a particular ethnic group. 
Since I'm white, I can't see how racist I am. I have white blindness or white fragility. But notice what that means. It means that truth is not absolute or objective. It's relative and subjective. And it also means that scripture is no longer sufficient because we also need this philosophical lens of critical theory in order to understand reality and race and to go about racial reconciliation. So this philosophical presupposition is behind everything. And if it was just assumed on the fringes of society, that would be bad enough, but unfortunately it isn't. This language, this lens is being promoted in schools, in the media, by all celebrities, and most tragically by many churches and pastors, even otherwise theologically conservative ones. For more on critical race theory, how it relates to some of the other philosophical currents that we see in our culture, I'd encourage you to read our blog we posted last year called The Evangelical uh, Drift. But for all of these reasons, the conversation around race is really difficult today. And before I move on to the solution, I just wanna say one thing for the sake of clarity. The reason that many today are so passionately opposed to things like Black Lives Matter and critical race theory isn't because we're just trying to protect our positions of power or because we're inevitably racist. The reason is because we actually care about racism and we actually care about justice. But we also know that anytime we try to fight for justice by forsaking truth, we actually end up promoting injustice. Look at Isaiah 59, 14 through 15. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. Look at why. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. Let me be clear. I hate the organization Black Lives Matter because I actually care about black lives. I think Black Lives Matter actually says black lives don't matter. It's the same reason I hate LGBTQ organizations. Not because I hate homosexuals, but because I love them and I hate organizations that prey upon them and actually harm them. And that's what I think Black Lives Matter does. That's what I think critical race theory does. That's what I think defunding the police does. Who is actually hurt if the police are defunded? The poor, the orphans, the widows, the oppressed, the minorities who live in inner cities and so forth. So imagine, if you will, that your house is infested with mice. So you call an exterminator and he says, I, I, I have just what you need. So he, he brings in this bag and he dumps the bag out and a dozen adult cobras spread out through the house. And he says, this'll do the trick. That's what critical race theory does. It attempts to solve one problem, but in doing so it creates a much bigger problem. We've already seen it do just that over the past couple of months in our culture. The rise of socialism, riots in which more black people have been killed than have been killed by police, murders skyrocketing in major cities, most of those, again, minorities, looting, riots, protests, and more racism. Are we now more or less divided on race since we started drinking the critical race Kool-Aid? Those who think that they can use these theories to help solve racism are like the guys in the Lord of the Rings who want to use the ring for good. The problem is the ring can't be used that way. All you can do is destroy it. Otherwise, you'll be corrupted by it. So what's the solution? Well, I've heard many well-meaning pastors say that things like racial reconciliation and justice aren't gospel issues. 
Well, that's really hard to square with how the Bible uses the term gospel. Justice and race are certainly kingdom issues, so we should care about and work toward justice. Galatians 3.8, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. In other words, Paul sees the blessing of all nations and thus all peoples as an implication of the gospel because it's an aspect of the kingdom. On the other hand, I've heard well-meaning pastors say that maybe we should use things like critical race theory as an analytical tool to help us understand and then combat racism. In fact, the Southern Baptist Convention adopted a resolution last year saying just that, that we should use critical race theory. So why can't we use critical race theory as a helpful tool? I'll tell you why, two reasons. First, because what's being implied by those who are using the language and the assumptions and the categories of critical theory is kind of that you can just eat the meat and spit out the bone. Here's the problem with that analogy. Critical race theory isn't like a bone you can pick out. It's like poison that's infected the entire piece of meat. It presents a worldview that makes certain claims that aren't just different from the gospel, but are actually explicitly contrary to the gospel. So unless you've really studied critical theory, if you, unless you really understand how dangerous it is, you don't have a resistance to the poison and you'll end up succumbing to its effects. That's why I would actively, actually discourage the vast majority of you from reading things like White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo unless you've spent the adequate amount of time building up resistance to the poison, like Wesley with the Iocane powder and Princess Bride. That's the first problem. The second one is because we always have to identify the bigger danger to the church. For example, are there churches that are unbiblically harsh toward those who struggle with homosexuality? Yes, there are. But is that the bigger cultural danger to the church? No. Instead, it's the countless churches and denominations that are affirming same-sex relationships as acceptable and good. Or another example, are there churches that are promoting chauvinism or actual misogyny? Maybe, but is that the biggest threat to the church? Definitely not. Instead, it's the countless churches, countless denominations that are feasting on the theories of feminism and so also in race. Are there churches where actual racism is being promoted as a good thing? There might be. But is that the bigger threat? I don't think so. I think that an explicitly atheistic secular theory that intentionally divides Christians, tells believers to find their identity in their oppression rather than Christ, denies absolute truth, perverts the sufficiency of scripture is a much bigger threat. I don't know a single Christian who thinks racism is good. Whereas lots of my actual friends are being seduced by neo-Marxism and relativism and postmodernism as though they are good and helpful. So secular ideologies are not the solution. What is? You know the answer before I say it. The answer is the gospel. So let me give you uh, a couple of uh, gospel truths to remember when it comes to racial reconciliation. The first one is that reconciliation has already occurred. By this, I don't merely mean between God and man, but also between man and his fellow man. Look at Ephesians 2. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made us both one 
and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Notice Jew and Gentile are already reconciled in Christ. In fact, the New Testament will go on and say that in Christ there is now neither Jew nor Gentile or barbarian, or slave, or free. If the gospel has already reconciled these actual biblical distinctions, Jew from Gentile, how much more can it reconcile man-made distinctions on the basis of skin color or facial features? So reconciliation, reconciliation has already occurred, and yet like all kingdom gifts, we wait for full consummation. It's an already, but not yet. The implications of this cross-centered reconciliation between the races have not completely eradicated racism, even racism within the church. And it won't until the return of Christ. So until then, we should labor in love toward that goal. But how do we labor? By remembering and proclaiming that justification is by grace alone through faith alone. As I mentioned uh, earlier, racism is a rejection of the idea of justification by faith. It says that you're more or less worthy of salvation because of your heritage or your ancestry or your pedigree or your ethnicity or your race. It reminds me of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke. The Pharisee cries out, thank God I'm not like that tax collector. Likewise, racism says, thank God I'm white. Or thank God I'm not white. Well, that's justification by works. Ironically, most of what's happening in culture in the name of racial reconciliation is reconciliation by works rather than reconciliation by faith. This is why it leads ultimately to either pride, thank God I'm woke, Or, thank God I'm anti-racist, or it leads to incessant shame and guilt. People kneeling on the streets. People apologizing for the sins of their ancestors. That's all justification by works can give you. Either pride, if you think you're doing well, or shame if you're not. That's what reconciliation by works does. The other day, my daughter Larkin walked into my office, and as she did, she said, my hands are dirty, I need to clean them. She's been a a bit more aware of germs since the pandemic. So I was encouraged to hear her say that. But then she took her hands and held them up to her face and she did this and just licked them. And then she said, all clean. (laughs) That's the image I have for most of the conversation around race. There is a problem. Racism exists. Racism in the church exists. Racism in America exists. But the solution isn't to clean ourselves When we clean ourselves, we actually just make things worse. That's justification by works. That's reconciliation by works. We just end up ingesting the very germs that are infecting us. So the solution is to be cleansed by another, by Christ. And that brings us to the last point, and that is that Christ wins. The king wins. Revelation 5, 9 through 10 And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. Not white supremacy or black supremacy, not the alt-right or Antifa, but Christ. Christ wins. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. In a second we'll pray to that end. First let me just mention at the end of your notes, I put a few names We've thrown a lot of terms and ideas at you. I didn't want to leave you without some direction if you want to keep studying. You can always come and chat with us. We would love to do that. But if you're the kind of person who wants to do some work on your own first, 
Uh, here are a few places to start. We certainly would not agree with everything by these people. So this is not an unqualified endorsement entirely, but we've generally found them to be helpful in regards to the conversation on race. On the secular side, just related to things like data and statistics uh, on systemic racism and policing and so forth. Uh, Thomas Sowell should have an extra L there. I left that off on accident. John McWhorter, Heather McDonald have been helpful. But if you really want like a particularly biblical, ro robust worldview Christian response to race and critical race theory, guys like Neil Shinvey, Vody Bauckham, Daryl Harrison, Doug Wilson, and John MacArthur have been helpful. Again, some of those guys are controversial, but on this topic, they've been really faithful. As always, if we can help, let us know. Let's, uh, let's pray, and then we'll take some questions. Father, I do ask again just for your help. I know that uh, this is a, uh, a polarizing and politicized conversation and that there is a whole lot of division in the church and in our culture. And so I pray that you would help us, Lord, that you would not allow us to be like those who would swing the pendulum, who would uh, swing the pendulum from uh, thinking everything is racist to thinking that nothing is racist. You would not be like, uh, you know, allow us to be those who would swing the, uh, the, the pendulum from uh, caring about this too much to not caring at all or whatever it might be. And so I pray that you'd help us just to be faithful, to be nuanced, uh, to be Christian, to speak the truth in love. And so we ask because we know that you care about race and you care about racism and you care about us and you care about all of these sorts of things more uh, even than we do. And so we pray that you would help us to have your heart as we seek to think your thoughts after you, as we reflect upon your word, we pray these things in Christ's name, amen.